As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. Joe, it is a a very special episode of the Odd Lots podcast. It is the Christmas call-in show. I I am very excited. We've never done, you know, we've never done an episode like this. We've never really had like sort of listener participation. We've never had anything resembling a call-in show. Mm -hmm. We've never really done an episode like about us, which feels a little narcissistic. I usually (laughs) like being... I like I like asking questions more than answering questions. I don't right, know that, that's why we all became journalists. But you're right. Yeah. This is a special one for us. We asked people to send in audio recordings of them asking us questions, and we are now going to attempt to answer them. We also are doing this in conjunction with our producer Carmen Rodriguez. She is here with us right now. And Carmen, you've put together some questions of your own, right? I have, I have, and I I just feel like I'm being robbed of my moment to say thanks for having me so thanks for having me (laughs) i jumped right into it the perfect wait i guess you're not the perfect guest the perfect coast the perfect host the perfect co-host but it is exciting (laughs) that the uh the listeners are hearing your voice for the first time i guess maybe they heard it on some of those live episodes maybe maybe anyway thank you for having me i'm happy to be here even though i'm here every day we we are (laughs) thanks for coming out we are happy to have you in in front of the camera and the microphone um as opposed to behind it for once uh What's your first question? My first question is, how did you meet and how was Odd Lots born? <laughs> I, I guess <laughs> you want to take, you want to start? I'll, I'll start with the beginning, which is okay. I remember the first time I met Joe and, you know, we, we had both been covering um, finance and markets for a long time. Joe was at Business Insider at the time and I was at the Financial Times. And I remember I met him in a bar in Midtown. And it must have been like 2012 or 2013. It was in the midst of the Eurozone crisis and we were having a sort of finance Twitter gathering. But Joe and I showed up first. And I remember (laughs) for those who have never met Joe in person, he can be intense. And I remember there was no like, no chit chat. It was just like, hi, I'm Tracy, (laughs) hi, I'm Joe. And then Joe's first question was like, so you think the Eurozone's gonna collapse? And that was it. That's the most I've Joe never, Weisenthal thing ever. Yeah. No, yeah, that's true. Tracy is right about that. I'm not good at like, you know, chit chat and stuff like that. I just want to get right into it. But anyway, obviously, um, you know, we hit it off pretty well, despite the lack of chit chat. I joined Bloomberg in late 
2014. So basically exactly eight, eight years ago. And as part of like the, I, my job at Bloomberg has like evolved numerous times since then. Like I've done numerous different things and different permutations, but one of the first things I was given the opportunity to do is, okay, we're going to do something uh, digital. It wasn't podcast or anything like that yet. And I had a chance to go out and hire some people to work. And Tracy was the very first person that I wanted to hire. Uh, Clearly I answered the Eurozone question correctly. I yeah, made I got, an impression. You got it right. I don't remember what you said, <laughs> but clearly you got it right because I had always been a fan of uh, Tracy's work when she was at the FT. And she, uh, yeah, she agreed to come on. And, you know, it's like she had been at Bloomberg once. So there was like a little like bureaucracy, like getting back and all that stuff. But we didn't really know what we were doing, but I was excited. And that, yeah. And so um, that's how we both, uh, both wound up here. Nice. Great. So on that and then, note. And then I guess on like the podcast question, and it just before we forget about that, we sort of like didn't know what we were doing and we were doing a lot of different things. And I remember like one day I like turned to Tracy. I was like, Can we do a podcast together? And, you know, we sort of like at the time podcasts weren't nearly as big as they are now. And not every media company like had their whole like podcast strategy and all these like podcast startups. And Bloomberg was like, yeah, okay, you guys can, we, we don't know what it's going to be about or anything like that, but all right, we'll give you like an hour of radio studio once a week or something to do whatever. We didn't know what Odd Lots was going to be about, but turn on the microphone. And that was uh, late 2015. So we've been doing it like seven years. Did you ever have a moment when you were like, okay, we should really hone in on what it is that we're doing here because we're too all <laughs> over the place, like at the beginning, or did it just kind of naturally form itself into what it is now? Hmm. I mean, I think, I think that kind of flexibility is, is, in my mind, a strength of odd lots. And it means that like we haven't confined ourselves to one topic in particular. And it means that we've been able to evolve along with the news cycle. So if you go back and look at some of our, our early episodes, some of them are really out there. Like I remember we did one on bananas, Ooh. basically because mm -hmm. I'd read a book about bananas. But nowadays we would look at that episode and say it's a banana supply chain episode. Right. Um, but then we did a lot of finance stuff. You know, we, we just sort of like went along with the news cycle until we arrived at 2020, where suddenly a lot of it was about things happening in the real economy. And I think that's really benefited us that we haven't said, you know, this is a podcast specifically about this and then been boxed yeah. in. I do think, you know, maybe late 2019, like as Tracy notes, like the first episodes, you can go back and look like they're super random, like bananas. We did a few episodes about like Florida real estate. Mm -hmm. We did an episode about catfish. The catfish bubble. The, the yeah. catfish bubble. We did an episode, I think, about cattle trade. Anyways, they're kind of all over the map. I think it was like late 2019 we started like finding it a little bit, you know, we did some of the, um, uh, we did an episode, I think with Zoltan in 2019, when uh, uh, the liquidity and the repo stuff and mm. the Fed reserves were draining, but it really was early 2020 with the pandemic that it felt like we were starting to get a groove in terms of what is this show kind of about and what is our relationship between the episodes and the news cycle. And I think that's when we really found our rhythm. Mm. On that note, I also wanted to, you know, to continue that basically. So I've seen you sort of follow the pulse of what's going on in markets and that kind of dictates a lot of the programming. But every now and then you kind of get these like weird, unexpected connections. And I think that's very particular to the Odd Lots brand. And so I want to know, have you ever seen these unexpected connections directly or somewhat directly affect Ooh. the market structures that are the more cyclical things in the stories or anything like that? Joe, you want yeah, me to try? Yeah, you want to take that one for it? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think, I think like the way I think about markets is it's sort of this tangled web and some 
bits of the web are more obvious than others, but some of them are really hidden. And so I think whenever you have something big that happens or you have a crisis of some sort, you kind of start to pull the threads and you start to see these connections. And the great thing about Odd Lots is we will have a conversation about one thing, um, like semiconductors, and then it just leads us down a rabbit hole to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And the global economy and markets right now are so interconnected that you are always finding those hidden relationships. And so it's almost like it's really easy to book episodes now because one episode will naturally lead into five other episodes. And we always joke about it that we come away with an episode with five other episode ideas. But it's really true. Yeah, and you know, the other thing I would say these days too that makes it easy is, and we've talked about this and listeners have talked about this like for years, I would definitely say our episode topic skewed financial for obvious reasons, you know, is coming out of the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. And you know, and then our like episodes with COVID and the pandemic started skewing more towards physical the supply chains. And so now you just see it everywhere, right? Like you just, w- whether it's like prices, on the menu or everyone experiencing a shortage of something. And so then we sort of, it's all like the, the physical visible world becomes a really big source. So now you just like see it everywhere. And so trade, like there's too many topics for us to possibly discuss. Like there's always more things we want to talk about that we could talk about like in a given month or a given week, just because like you look around like, oh, that'd be interesting. That'd be interesting. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's just a, it's a, it's an endless fire hose of uh, topics that we see from just observing the real world. Do you have a favorite unexpected moment, unexpected connections moment? Oh, I have one. And mm-hmm. I, I only know this because I wrote about it, but it's um, sawdust mm-hmm. and housing and milk prices. So, uh, so you know, when we're talking about this sort of web of relationships in the real economy, and this is a really good example, which is that after 2008, you had a rise in milk prices. Mm -hmm. And there was someone who like dug into why that was happening. And they found out that the reason it was happening was because the housing bubble had burst. So there wasn't as much housing construction, which meant that there wasn't as much sawdust being produced. And it turns out that cows really like to sleep on beds of sawdust. So basically, because of 2008 and the housing bubble bursting, a bunch of cows were unhappy and were producing less milk, (laughs) which translated into higher milk prices. I just want to jump in here really quick and say that that reading that before you said this um, actually won me a trivia the other night. Really? Yeah, because someone was like, do cows produce more or less milk when they sleep on sawdust? And I'm like, oh, I don't know wow. who wrote this question. It was one of those card games oh my God. that like, you have to guess whether it's true or false. And I was like, that is and true. And you knew the answer. Like, yeah, it's, it has to be more sawdust because they have to be comfortable and happy so that they make more milk. Anyway, I just want to say thank you for winning me. Uh, a oh, that's awesome. Did well, you win? Well done, Tracy. I did win. Yes. Yes. Love it. So, go team. I think the recent one we did with uh, Ken Jarosh where he mentioned that because of the semiconductor shortage, they produced fewer cars. Because they produced fewer cars, they had less demand for hides for seeds. Because there was less demand for hides for seeds, there was less uh, gelatin produced from as a byproduct, and that impaired the production of gummy bears. It was like a really amazing one that I would have never thought of. But I do think it speaks to like the complexity of the, like there is sort of this obvious complexity to supply chains, right? It's like, 
point A, point B, point C, you disrupt something, then the whole ripple effect. But I think it's like seeing these sideways things where it's like, mm. the, the uh, even uh, Ken, I think in that episode, he's like, it's not a supply chain, it's a supply web. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was really interesting. Like there is not just like some starting product and end product. There's like all these sideways movement from all the byproducts that get created, the waste products that get used and the other things. And I think it's really hard, uh, explains why it's really hard to know yeah. how huge disruptions to society like a pandemic are really going to play out because no one talks about these things in normal times. Like they're so submerged, so invisible during normal times. You only see them after the fact, like, oh, shoot, the impairment of cars affected uh, gummy bears. But no one would ever talk about that relationship prior to ha- it having been exposed. And that's for your next trivia game. Yes. Yes. (laughs) As a leading real estate manager, principal asset management harnesses the power of a 360 degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you have anything that you now can't stop thinking about? Like, I think mm. an example where for me would be I'm reading Anthony Bourdain's I'm reading Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential, mm. and he describes about how um, how chefs design their menu based off of what's available and what when they're delivered. So, like, if you're ordering if you're ordering fish on a Thursday, that might not be the best day because it's not as fresh. Whether or not this is true now, it's all I can think about whenever I look at a menu. So, like, have you learned anything <laughs> via Odd Lots that still sticks with you in the same capacity today? I think for me, the one thing, and it's not like some sort of like necessarily idiosyncratic thing like that, but I'm, and maybe it's not even the odd laws per se, but I'm very, uh, uh, I really notice energy waste and heat, particularly after all the episodes we've done on uh, European energy costs and having to turn down the temperature and stuff like that. Like a, a few months just ago, thinking Joe to... has turned into like the ultimate dad where you just wander yeah. around the, the house, like flipping off light switches well, and turning much. down the thermostat. It, well, a few months ago, I went to a public beach and there was like a shower at the beach and, you know, like clean off your feet and stuff like that. And the shower had a warm water option. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like people don't need warm waters. At a public shower at a beach to wipe to wash up your feet, I was like, "This is a really scandalous waste of energy." Like two years ago, I wouldn't care. It's like, "Oh, like turn on the shower." It's like, "Oh, nice warm water for feet." But I was like, "This is a huge waste. Why didn't they even give this option?" <laughs> so I do think that like energy waste and heat in particular, like I just like think about all the time, uh, all the time now. Yeah, like, I, I don't take it for granted anymore. <laughs> I, I mean, I guess on a similar note, I, I think about supply chains a lot more than I used to, but I also 
you know, setting the real economy stuff post 2020 aside, I also think a lot about incentives Mm -hmm. and why people do the things they do, like often have to do much more with short term incentives than necessarily like rational long term outcomes. For instance, if you if you're talking about like, why are investors investing in risky, higher yielding stuff? Well, it's because they have a bunch of new inflows and they have like a yield bogey that they need to actually meet. And so I think about that a lot more, like how are the incentives set and how does that influence what people are actually doing? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Pivoting away now and talking about crypto, was there a moment when you decided like, okay, we should actually start paying Mm. attention to this and taking it seriously, at least for the news sake? I would love to know if you had a moment like that. (laughs) Joe, you go first. Well, you know, like, look, so I'm a market supporter. I always have been. And people ask me, what's market? And I would say, completely un- ironically, it's like, it's a line that goes up and down. If there's a line on a screen that goes up and down, it's probably a market story. Uh, and crypto is like the ultimate line that goes up and down. And, you know, in the beginning, I think it was, it, it didn't take very long for me, not to like take it seriously per se, but to realize that maybe some of my assumptions about like, oh, this is just a flash in the pan, like mm. we're gonna be wrong. And I probably like wrote some like crypto obituaries in like 2011 or something like that. And then like eventually like it didn't die and I kept thinking it would. So at some point I guess I was like, well, trying to wrap my head around like, what is this? Like what is actually going on? And after like a decade, like I still don't really have like <laughs> an opinion or a view or an idea where it's going. But I guess if eventually like something doesn't die long enough, if it goes on, then naturally you're, I think if you're a journalist or if you're anyone, you should sort of have some like, okay, what am I getting wrong? Maybe I should actually like pay attention. So somewhere in 2012 or 2013, I remember writing a piece for Business Insider and I was like, I was wrong like about crypto and I sort of like admitted it. And I did not like, oh, Bitcoin is gonna become the world's reserve currency or something or anything like too capitulatory. But I did say like, okay, like I, it, it hasn't died and I don't think it's going to. And there's some interesting problems that it seems to solve like in, in computer science. And ever since then, I've just sort of had this, like tried to be like open mind and curious. And after all this time, I still don't have a view, but you know, I try to be, try to be open-minded that like there's something there. So two things there. One, I, I totally agree with the idea of crypto as like the ultimate expression of lines going up or down, like the ultimate yeah. momentum play. And so if you cover Absolutely. markets, like, you know, there, there is a natural interest. The second thing is someone once described it to me as far more interesting than it is important, which I thought ah, was a really that. good way of putting it because you're talking about the creation, you know, you're talking about new technology, but you're also talking about the creation of a new type of money. And that just opens yeah up all these interesting questions about, well, what is money? And how do you design a new financial system? And then lastly, the one other thing I would say is I think we made a conscious decision to engage with the space and try to ask some of the harder questions like, where does the yield actually come from? What is the (laughs) use case for this brand new technology that you say is going to change the world? And, uh, you know, we have asked those questions in various iterations for many, many years now. Um, And it's an open question about whether or not we've gotten a satisfactory answer. But like we have tried to engage with the space to ask those harder questions. Yeah, I think like engaging with the space, like in good faith and like, you know, sort of. And it's like, let's engage with it on its own terms and like talk to people who ostensibly are its best, uh, uh, you know, the best 
most involved characters who should have uh, the best answers. And to sort of like come at it with it's like, yeah, clearly we have skepticism. We don't really know what it's for, where it's going, but we want to like hear honest answers and have like genuine questions. Mm -hmm. But it's true that even after all this time, like I literally have no idea like what it's ultimately going to be used for, if anything. So um, we're going to get to the questions from the audience soon, but do you have a favorite guest that you've had on over the years? Ooh. Oh, I, I think... I mean, we have so many. Mm -hmm. um, or even yeah, just this a is favorite moment. This is like asking us to name favorite children. <laughs> um, I I really enjoyed having, this was before your time, Carmen. This was way in the beginning. We had on um, the archeologist, Arthur Demarest, who's oh, been yeah. at various times described as the real life Indiana Jones. And I have like a very small hobby where I like to read archeology span and anthropology books. And so talking to him was fascinating. And I remember the conversation was about the collapse of civilizations. I think about that episode a lot. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if I, you know, I really liked uh, our recent episode with Gord McGill, which I don't know, it's like, oh, is he my favorite guest? I would not necessarily say that, but I would say like, in terms of what I would say, if I wanted to identify, if I wanted to send someone what I would think is like a very like quintessential episode of Odd Lodge, it would be something like that. We like dive into something deep. We talk to a guest who was not like a huge household name, which is one of the things I really like about having mm -hmm. done this show for years is like, we have had some really big guests on, like big names, and I'm really like thrilled that they'll come on. Like it's cool how often, like say Neil Kashkari, the head of the Minneapolis Fed, has come on, or Jan Hatzius of Goldman Sachs, or people like that. But I have to say, for me, like the most satisfying thing, or one of the most satisfying things that we do is when we find someone. Tracy uh, mentioned Arthur. People who aren't necessarily household names, and people are like, oh, this is someone who really. Uh, is good, you know, D Stinson Dean, the lumber trader mm. is another one uh, kind of like that. People who are like really in some area aren't necessarily huge, but because of their localized expertise can really speak to some really big macro topics. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Should we take some questions from the audience now? Let's do Let's it. Let's do it. Cool. Hi, Tracy and Joe. This is Will Fang from London. Over the last couple of years, Odd Lots has become my favorite podcast. I have to admit, though, there are episodes like those on market structure where my comprehension level is in the most optimistic estimate at 
Given the breadth of topics you guys cover with the perfect guest, do each of you have 100% comprehension of 100% of your episodes? Thanks and keep up the great work. <laughs> uh, do we actually understand what we're talking about? <laughs> um, I mean, I would say like we cover a lot of stuff and I think it would be unrealistic to assume that like both Joe and I arrive at every episode with a total understanding of the particular market or topic that we're, we're speaking about. And I think that actually lends itself to a better show because often we are starting at the same level of knowledge as your average listener. And so we can ask the basic questions like, well, yeah. what do we mean when we say like, whatever. Um, and then the other thing I would say is, uh, so I don't know if our listeners know, but Joe and I, um, we go through all the transcripts of our show and we edit them ourselves and we publish them and it takes hours to do. But I actually kind of like doing it because it gives you a chance to go back and read everything and really like internalize it in a way that maybe you didn't have the chance to do when you were actually speaking. So I, from that perspective, yeah. the transcripts help. I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. Like, first of all, there are episodes particularly related to market structure or bond market liquidity or Fed plumbing, et cetera. I'm like, I think I'm just going to sort of sit back and listen to Tracy and the guest talk because I feel like I know the less. Wow. But as Tracy pointed out, too, like that's really like I, I I do think it works often coming to a topic with like not that much knowledge or maybe not that much prep because then you are sort of like asking the questions that naturally, like when I think of like odd lots, I think like we have uh, a, pr a very intelligent listener listener base, but you know, like anyone else, like can't, there's only, a, there's a limit to how much you can be informed on. So I think a lot of our questions are sort of like, what would a, like a fairly smart plugged in person ask about a subject with which they really were unfamiliar? And I think that is sort of the top, the approach that many, uh, Tracy and I take to a lot of these interviews. For what it's worth, I think that's a strength of the show because a lot of people come in and like this person said they don't really know everything, but by the end of it, yeah. they're like, well, I understood some of it now. So I, I really just some, that. Just gotta, just some, that's bit. all we aim for, yeah. a little bit. Well, even if you're putting, you're just putting something on mm -hmm. someone's radar so that they can, you know, go off and learn about it more after the episode, I think that's important too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Should we hear the next one? This is Leo from Massachusetts, and my question is, what are your uncut thoughts on MMT? That one's for Tracy. And for Joe, what are your uncut thoughts on Austrianism? Thanks. <laughs> uh, should, should I go first with MMT? Go for it. I'm not sure I can do totally uncut thoughts. Um, okay, uh, a, a nice thing first. So I'm on the record this year as saying that my most MMT-adjacent thought is that if a problem can be solved with money, then it's probably not that big of a problem. And I think that reflects MMT's emphasis mm. on real resources. And I, I think like that part of it has genuinely been useful for the past couple of years. I guess the bit that I'm a little bit less convinced by is you know, the emphasis on the the constraint to government spending is inflation. Like that's what MMT tells you. It's not that a government has a budget like a household, uh, it's that is what they're spending on actually going to cause like inflation in the short term or long term. And so you hear a lot about, you know, people saying, well, MMT changed the narrative. So now we don't have politicians who go, oh, we can't afford this. Instead, we have discussions about is this inflationary or not? And I, th I really think one of the things we've learned from the past two years is that actually we do not have a good understanding of what causes inflation or how it works. So I'm not sure passing 
the buck from mm. like, can we afford this or not to, is this going to cause inflation or not? Is that useful? And I think like the idea of politicians getting together in real time and trying to figure out like, if we do this, is that going to cause a price spike? Like basically, I think you're you're trading one debate for another. That's it. I, I like I like both those answers, the plus and the minus. Okay, Austrianism. You know, when I was like a kid in college, uh, I still have I have a copy of uh, Human Action, Ludwig von Mises's <laughs> book on my. In fact, Nathan Tankis recently he was at my house recently and he tweeted a photo of me holding it. So you could go and find it. So that's proof I have read a fair amount of. Austrian economics. I don't know. Like the thing, I don't find it that useful. I don't find it that interesting if I'm being totally honest. Like I've read a fair amount. Seems kind of repetitive. I'm not really sure if it has much connection. I want to say something like nice about it. I don't think that like assuming that the starting point of like the economy is this like pure market is even that useful, even in the most like abstract sense. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of something like nice or like, oh, that I've like in, in, in incorporated Austrian thinking. By and large, it just seems like to imagine a, a world and a set of cent, uh, incentives that strike me is pretty divorced from anything real or useful. I'm sorry, I wanted to say something kind of nice like Tracy did. And I have some, some of my best friends are Austrian. No, I have some. <laughs> I have some. That's I have the some, nicest I, thing Joe could find to say about it. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Yeah. All right. Sorry. I wish I could say something. I wish I could say something like more, but it all kind of it's seems okay. like nonsense. It's all good. Okay. We can hear, we can go on to the next one. So in 2019, when I started listening, a lot of the financial conversations were around financialization and plumbing in the financial system. So the switch from Libor to Sofer. Uh, reverse repo rate spiking, um, just generally questions around whether the zero interest rate policy was actually working and whether the natural uh, interest rate had changed um, and we were in a new era. And now the question seems to have shifted to more real economy topics, geopolitics, oil, a um, lot of issues around inflation, supply chains. So my question is, are we in a true paradigm shift where for the next decade or so we can expect the questions to stay focused on the real economy as opposed to financialization? Thank you. You know, it's a good question. And I don't know, like, obviously, like as the questioner, as Jonathan notes, like, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's been this like shift and, and we've already and we've talked about it. Paradigm shift, I suspect. I do think that the 2010s for certain things like energy security, semiconductor availability, certain things like that, I think a lot of governments kind of were a little bit asleep at the wheel, assumed that a lot of these things were taken care of. And that like, particularly with energy security, it was just not top of mind. And it was sort of like, okay, fossil fuels are gonna ride off into the sunset and then we're gonna replace them by uh, uh, electrical cars and other forms of renewable energy. And this is the final chapter. And I think we did get a pretty rude awakening over the last year about how difficult this process is, how much uh, governments have to take energy security again, mm. how unstable even the source of the commodities for electrification are going to be. And so even if things settle down and even if prices come down and we don't and these supply chain disruptions fade and inflation comes down, I don't think we're, it'll be a while 
before we can forget the physical world, so to speak. Like these are long cycles. And so I think these are now, regardless of price, going to be pretty top of mind topics for some time. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And it, it actually, it kind of goes back to what we were discussing with, with MMT, which is like, mm. if, some, if you can throw money at a problem and solve it, it's probably not that big of a problem. And I think this might be one reason why we moved away from um, a lot of financial episodes, although we still talk plenty about it. But, you know, one thing we learned, I think, between 2008 and 2022 is that there's a sort of like endless number of things that central banks can do to prop up a market or fix a particular liquidity issue. And so when you get these big financial crises, like in 2020, like, oh, well, the Fed just came out and supported the entire US Treasury market, or they announced the corporate bond buying program and things like that. Whereas some of the real economy issues that were thrown up by the disruptions of 2020, they are much more difficult to solve, I think, because you're also dealing with geographic restrictions, like, you know, who has oil and who doesn't, and how do you actually move it from one place to another? And so I think those relative shortages like have just been thrown into sharp relief by 2020. And I think it's going to be hard for governments to forget that, which is why you've seen more of an emphasis on how we actually build up strategically critical infrastructure and resources and things like that. Mm -hmm. This is Sam Glover calling in from Chicago. If you were to go back a medium amount of time, so like five to 10 years, what is the take that you had at the time that is most wrong today and why? Ooh, wow. I mean, I'm pretty sure I wrote at least two or three Bitcoin obituaries (laughs) throughout my career, which makes me reluctant to write another one. So the uh, so then it then it really is going to die this time. Probably. Now now that you're now that you're reluctant. Oh, that is a that is a good question. I think I probably would have assumed that. Uh, I mean, I definitely was wrong. You know, uh, I would I would I did not think that we would have like a big uh, inflationary spike like this. I would have assumed that it would have taken a lot more, either from a real economy standpoint or a spending capacity or a sort of political collapse standpoint to get the sort of level of inflation that we've seen over the course of 2022. Also like Tracy, you know, probably many big, many cryptocurrency takes uh, I've completely gone, gotten wrong. I'm trying to think, those. I guess those are probably the two big ones. Uh, two huge things, basically, uh, yeah, two huge things that I've gotten wrong. Great. Should we hear from another Joe from Let's Austin? This is just Joe asking questions. And I am, by the way, for listeners, I am in Austin. So the fact that I, we have another hey, uh, a, a lots of Joe, Joe from, from Austin, Austin Texas, where we're desperately trying to keep things weird. My question for you is, what's the weirdest thing you've ever seen someone make a boatload of money trading? Oh, wow. You know, um, we did a, a Beanie Baby episode back in the day, and I don't think, I can't remember if I mentioned this or not, but in like 1996 or 98, like at the top of the Beanie Baby bubble, when I was 10 or 11 years old, I sold a tie-dyed colored lizard Beanie Baby at some like market event for $200. And that was like Ooh. the most amount of money that I had ever seen or had. And that was a highly successful trade for me that I have never, uh, never since replicated. 
You know, I had a trade. So I, when I was like after my freshman year of high school, it was like during the dot com uh, bubble. And I was like trading with a friend and we did very well because everyone was doing well in those days. And we took, we had like, um, both of us like took $2,000 from a summer job. And like by the end of the summer, we had turned it into $20,000, which was like pretty great, wow. obviously. But uh, by the end, we like started getting really good. And we like figured out there's like weird glitch. We started trading like penny stocks and it was like, we found some patterns that were like pretty easy to replicate day after day. And there was like uh, one, stock that I traded and I knew it was going to go up a lot the next day. And, but I was also flying. I had, uh, I was studying abroad and so I couldn't uh, do anything with it. And if I had like pushed back my flight to Switzerland from study for studying abroad one day, I think I would have made like $50,000 overnight. I've gone from 20,000 to 50,000 and um, I didn't. So it was sort of like, I was like, so I, my biggest sort of like shocking thing was, you know, or the biggest thing that I remember was uh, not making a lot of money on one day. I can tell the whole story some other time. Joe so that still, was, that was, still keeps him up at night. Yeah, you know. It's sort We've of never like actually done like, an episode which was like Joe's lessons trading penny stocks during oh, we the should do, we should. We'll do one of those. Yeah, yeah, I think that'd be interesting. Cool. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Joe. This is David calling from Berlin, Germany. First time caller, long time listener. I was wondering, what do you two plan on doing for retirement? Like how, when, and where? If you plan to kick the bucket in front of a terminal at the Bloomberg office, that's fine too. But I think you've got a broad enough variety of listeners. We're all on a different route. Wow. Oh, Matt, do we do we plan to die in front of our terminals in the Bloomberg I office? I do, yes. I do not see myself doing anything else for the rest of my my life. I mean, like if I retired, I would still just be at my computer posting and tweeting. So it's like, as long as Twitter exists. So I don't really see much, whether I'm technically employed or not employed in terms of what I do. Um, I believe Joe when he says that. Uh, I, I think one of the great things about Odd Lots is it does give you an opportunity to talk about virtually anything that we're interested in. So I mentioned, you know, archaeology and anthropology before, and I I would love to get an anthropologist on at some point to talk about cryptocurrencies um, and Wall Street in general. Mm. Uh, so it does give you this opportunity to do a bunch of different things. That said, I am a big fan of like just going out and learning new skills and doing new things. So it's it's hard for me to imagine that like my entire life I'm going to be writing about finance and markets. I feel like I will do something maybe alongside it at some point. You know, the, before I forget, the one other thing, I really want to do something with music in my life, mm -hmm. either like sell a song or like play some concerts. I write music. I played, a, uh, I really like country music. So that would be the one other thing I hope to achieve something in the rest of my years beyond this is like something or other to do with music. But, but even that, Odd Lots provides an outlet. Like we have done live shows where, where you perform. That's true. If in 2050 we, we made... have a new genre of music called financial <laughs> country music yeah, you could do have that joe to blame <laughs> we could do that for we could do that by this year cool so we got some questions in from twitter and there's no voice memos for those but i'll read them out loud from jm cumbreras question for you both which role plays twitter in building the topics for your episodes in terms of finding guests searching trends getting mm. background etc thanks for odd lots it's awesome huge i mean so you know 
it's not everything, but it's like a huge source of inspiration in terms of literally meeting people, seeing what people are talking about, you find niche industry experts. That's actually the, one of the main reasons I'd be concerned if like Twitter ever went away. The ability to find like random niche people who know one specific thing and have them sort of surface to and brought to, I can't think of another platform that does it that well. I mean, I th- I, I'll take the opposite side of that, which okay. is like, <laughs> you know, I. Twitter, Twitter, um, Twitter, like can be a massive distraction, but it's also really helpful from a productivity point. And I think it basically just allows you to do stuff that you would be doing in the normal course of journalism, but just slightly faster. So instead of like emailing a bunch of people and going like, oh, hey, do you know anyone who might be good to talk about like yeah. lumber prices or whatever, you can send out a tweet and immediately have it go to thousands of people who can direct you to the right person. So to me, it's a productivity tool. I. Th- you know, I, would I be sad if, if it went away? Part of me would be, and I would probably spend more time sending emails and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But like, I think I think we could still find good topics and good guests. Yeah. I mean, this episode would have been way harder to make if it wasn't for Twitter. So I'm also, nobody asked me, but I'm team Twitter. Yeah. Um, okay, so one last question from Twitter, speaking of, um, and at ndronin, says, Matt King of City has said twice on your show that it's never the analyst recommending to the portfolio manager to buy something. It's always the PM that says that we have new inflow and we have to put the money somewhere. So Hmm. doesn't this suggest that there's too much investable money and not investable opportunities? Hmm. After all, since 2000, Hmm. global GDP doubled and increased again by half. And that money has to go somewhere. So I have a lot of thoughts on this, mostly because I think about Matt King's research a lot. But this is... So I coined the term China's great ball of money, this idea that you just have a bunch of like extra money that's in a closed financial system and it's just rolling from thing to thing. So it'll go into housing and then it'll go into stocks and it will move back somewhere else. But if you expand that, you know, China is an extreme example of that. But if you expand that to the whole world, I, I don't think it's like a massive stretch to say that there is a lot of excess liquidity sloshing around the financial system and it needs to find a home somewhere. And so sometimes it goes into things kind of indiscriminately, which also ties into another one of my favorite sayings, which is flows before pros, which is also based on a Matt King note. And the idea there is that like sometimes the way to make alpha is just to invest in the thing that everyone else is investing in or will invest in early. And so, you know, in an era of sluggish economic growth, which um, our, our questioner alluded to, like maybe the way to outperform is just to do pure momentum mm-hmm. plays. And so that's like, that's kind of how, yeah, I, I think about that in the context of crypto, which we already mentioned is the ultimate momentum play. But I also think that more and more of the market is like being driven by just pure flows. And a lot of people are sort of embracing that. So for instance, the explosion in short dated um, equity options, like zero day options and stuff like that, that to me is just people like purely betting on like outcomes and flows at that point. I just, I'm just going to, I agree with what Tracy said. (laughs) Okay. That's the right answer. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, I disagree with you. I disagree with what you say. Shall we leave it there, Tracy? Are we going to leave it there? Yeah, it's 12.15. Let's leave it there. Uh, well, thank you to everyone for your questions. Uh, thank you to Carmen for coming on the podcast, making her first 
front of camera appearance and for all your great questions as well and all your help producing over the past year. Uh, for those who don't know, yeah. Carmen was kind of thrown in at the deep end of Odd Lots um, and there's a lot a lot to do. So you've definitely like stepped up to the plate and had a fantastic Absolutely. year. Aw, thank you. I'm gonna go blush in a corner Huge, now. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producers, Carmen Rodriguez at Carmen Arman and Dash Bennett at Dashbot. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. And for more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we post those transcripts, we blog, and we write a newsletter once a week that you should subscribe to. Thanks for listening. It's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.